So welcome to Session. I hope we are all working out some of the kinks in this process for us. One way to appreciate what Session is, a um, metaphor that came to mind for me is that we create we co-create we co-create a laboratory. We co-create a research facility where we can directly study the degree to which our own minds are a factor in our difficulties. Directly study the degree to which our own minds are a factor in our difficulties, in our unhappiness, etc. The mischief, even the misery that they may make. And this research in our direct experience of our mind's workings at least what we can see of it, empowers us in particular ways. We gradually make a shift, or we could say we discover new capacities, first of all, to just experience. To just experience, to be with um, what is happening, with a diminished interest in what our mind has to say about what is happening. So just to experience. And then from that we have the capacity to respond rather than just react. When we can be with experience and it's not fully entangled with uh, what the mind reacts to it, then um, there is a space with which we can have more agency about how we respond to things. And in a way, the result of these two is we discover the capacity to have our well-being, our dignity, our respect for ourselves and others be less dependent on externals. And even further, the mind itself, or the, the nature of being itself, to be a primary source of well-being. So, Zazen and Seshin is the lifetime art of removing the dust motes from our own eyes. It's a rare kind of environment where that is uh, the priority and as far as I can see this has only beneficial effect. There may be some side effects along the way as we as we do this work but all as far as I can see it has only beneficial effect to look into our own minds and to take agency over how they react to external circumstances. So to do this, we, we co-create a rarefied space and a, a laboratory, and a laboratory that is sacred because of what it makes possible. Now, it will be different at the monastery and at your home. 
And there's actually, from my perspective, it's not desirable to make your home practice like the monastery. Um, because both practice environments have, have their strengths and weaknesses. However, what unifies them is the sacred lab that we create by bringing in specific qualities, specific ingredients, the universal elements that go into uh, its construction. This is a laboratory that's transformative. The ingredients that go into a transformative laboratory. It's going to vary widely how we apply these and what we might um, adjust. And maybe nothing. And maybe that's just right. But for um, our reflection to make the most out of this time, I want to talk about those, those elements. The first is uh, relative simplicity. And you could think on why, why is the archetype of the contemplative a person in a cave or in a mountain? What is it about that kind of uh, condition? To some degree, we need to reduce the amount of external things tugging at our attention. We need to simplify uh, the environment. Or maybe it's more accurate to say to find the right amount of things tugging at our attention. Because if we have too much of a manicured environment, if we have too much of life shut out of our meditation practice, we can become like hothouse flowers. That we're able to be um, serene and have equanimity and see into the nature of things when you know, everything is calm and nobody is bothering us. Um, but if we only learn to discover equanimity in that kind of environment, then when we face bigger challenges, the practice tends to go out the window. So actually, some degree of disturbance is really useful. I didn't name that as one of the elements of transformative container, but I probably should have. You have to have unwanted presences. There have to be things that um, irritate us, that are arising internally or externally. And probably there's enough of that just in our own, our own being, our hearts, our minds, that would surface. So we don't need to go about um, seeking, seeking difficulty. So too much of a manicured environment could make us hothouse flowers. And on the other hand, too much complexity in the environment, too many things tugging at the senses. This is a kind of phrase you find in different ways throughout various meditative traditions. And you might notice that you can actually feel this as a, a kind of event that happens, that things in the environment tug on your senses. There is a pull outward towards this or that. And that when you start to um, abide in presence, the mind is not doing that. It's resting in its own, its own place more and more, and those things just aren't kind of hooking into and drawing the mind out of itself. So too much complexity, and we may never settle down. Of course, 
we look in the old texts and we find uh, praises of practitioners who were able to practice very deeply in the midst of challenging environments. The old metaphor of the lotus in the fire. So the lotus is the, is the purity of mind. So a mind that's not grasping, a mind that's not caught up in identity. And the fire is basically um, desire and the, the, the forces of life acting on us to do this and do that, all the pressures. So we may be such a person who the complexity of the environment does not really affect the depth of our practice. Um, but some little tweaks could uh, help and they may add up. So probably already mentioned our social media fasts or reducing that. I think the first, I don't know, 10 years of session that I did, there was no such thing as a smartphone. And that was, you know, now that's like the golden era when retreats could be so much deeper. I once, um, I don't know how I discovered this, but there was somebody during session who was sending Facebook messages during the breaks. And I forget how it became clear to us that they were doing that. But I just thought, well, I get that you're lonely, but that just defeats the purpose, you know, to be at the monastery and be doing that. At home, it's less, it's less clear because some of our work and family communication is tied up in those platforms. But for our consideration, um, reducing social media use, something like throwing a sheet over a bookcase or a record collection can be really useful. One of the things you may notice with the mind being hungry for sense data, that, that reaching out, is that sometimes the mind gets hungry for information. It gets hungry for words. It just wants to read things. I've seen people in the monastery like reading the back of cracker boxes and like going and looking at the schedule on the bulletin board four or five times every day just because they need, they need something. They need some, some food. Or one version of this is that they sneak the chant book back to their room and read it on their breaks. So our minds, our minds need some food, and we should feed our intellects in the right amount. Um, but these kind of things, especially if you're sitting in an environment, for example, I work with a facilitator who behind her when I'm doing Zoom are all these videos and books, and I keep being curious about what they are, and is that that new book by James Hillman, etc. So... Simplify your environment. Maybe you can take down some uh, post-it notes. You know, maybe you can put the project away for now. A more uh, working on a more subtle level of this is part of the purpose of a monastic environment or a cave, for that matter, is that there is nothing on the walls that reflects who you used to be and who you want to be to you. There, there are no um, kind of emblems of your personality on the wall that you reference and that kind of bring up um, the sense of who you've been. Apparently at Rochester Zen Center in the early days, they used to cover the mirrors. It's interesting, we're using the mirrors, but at Rochester Zen Center, they would cover the mirrors. And we've done that at Great Vow, and what you find is, oh yeah, that is a place where identity 
if the mirror is not used skillfully, is a way for me to check in with my sense of who I am, rather than disconnecting with that and, and letting it go. So you might want to also consider simplifying food if you're at home. Um, both it could free up time, it could also free up uh, a certain kind of uh, anxiety that goes into uh, meal planning. And of course all of these things can be a practice. So for your consideration. The second ingredient of the sacred lab that comes to me is order. Order. And order and safety kind of come together. So we need some kind of, of skeleton, something firm that holds everything else in, in place. So the, the order and safety, to the degree that we can establish that, allows the mind and the heart to relax in a particular way. There is a sense of allowing vulnerability that's not the whole of this process but is an important aspect of this process so safety but the the skeleton of order particularly some kind of schedule the essence of that to me is that you're not choosing whether you sit down and practice based on whether you feel like it or not in order for our practice to go beyond uh, a kind of a kind of soothing balm that we apply uh, only at times when we want to make something go away or to take it beyond a hobby we have to do it even when we don't feel like doing it okay. and of course the mind can think of reasons why actually I shouldn't be doing this session and so forth yes yes and it's really important that we sit down when we don't feel like meditating because we need to look into that mind that doesn't feel like meditating. We need to challenge the sense of these perceptions as being so solid and authoritative. And so that's what the, the container is about of, of schedule. And I encourage you to make some kind of commitment that you can keep. It's better for you to commit to one session and really stick to it than to commit to four a day and feel like you're forcing yourself and you just can't do it. And eventually you give up. That's, that's my perspective anyway. So we, we sit whether we feel like it or not. And hopefully we make effort when we're sitting whether we feel like it or not. Nobody knows. You know, it's, it's, it's entirely our own private truth. So rather than some uh, external discipline imposed on you, this skeleton, and whether you agree to follow it at the monastery, to be held by it, or whether you construct it at home, it expresses and embodies your commitment and aspiration. It embodies your commitment and aspiration. The part of you that most deeply wants to wake up may make this schedule, and the part of you that most deeply wants to be comfortable may balk at it, and that's another issue. So some kind of uh, order is the second element of, of a sacred laboratory of transformation. 
That connects with intention, this third element. And in a way, the monastery really helps with reminding us of the intention. This is the intention that the lineage in general believes is the purpose of practice. And that may be a little bit different than why you're doing it sometimes. Um, but we're reminded of what the purpose is, the intention of practice through the chants, through uh, teachings, through the way we set up our sitting space, actually even the posture itself. You know, you, you can kind of recline in your chair and do zazen, but that doesn't embody the intention of awakening like sitting in the Buddha's posture does. In a sense, actually just taking the Buddha's posture is, is the whole thing. Taking it and really inhabiting it is the whole thing. That's you becoming Buddha with intention, as Dogen Zenji said. So intention. And it may be that we have the, let's call it a very encompassing and broad intention of the tradition, wisdom and compassion awakening those capacities as deeply as possible in ourselves. And then within that, we have our particular ways of uh, expressing that or our, the steps that we see we need to take in our life, to the elements that we need to focus on within the umbrella of wisdom and compassion. Gratitude, patience, diligence, etc. So if you haven't been attending the, the chants, that might be a good reason to stay for the uh, services because that's what they're about. That's why we do it, is to be reminded, to be remembered. Fourth element in this laboratory is the principle of teacher. And I'm using this term in a broad sense, meaning something or someone that gives us perspective on ourselves. So the chanted teachings do that. This mirror can do that. Someone more experienced reflecting what they hear about our practice can do that. Silence can give us perspective. If we're able to create some degree of, of silence, or relative quiet in our environment, that's a great teacher because the noise of our own minds and our own bodies really pop out in the context of silence. It's a great teacher. Um, some of you have probably have traffic noise going by. Um, you need to listen for children or a doorbell or whatever. And of course, of course, that is, that's part of your practice. But you might also find there are times when you could put in some earplugs and really reduce the noise in the environment. And that could be really helpful. So I invite you to uh, experiment with that. Uh, a fifth element, a little bit more subtle than the previous, is openness or positive uncertainty there is some effect on possibility when we enter this laboratory with a fixed idea of what we want to or what we're going to discover. Okay. 
we are studying, broadly speaking, the mind. So the subject is clear. We are studying the heart. The, uh, what we're researching, in a sense, is very clear. But if we have a fixed notion, or if we have this um, view of what we're doing, that I am here to make this happen, this state of mind, or I'm going to work on X quality, if we hold that too tightly, then what Seshin wants to bring forth, what Zazen wants to reveal, is a little bit hindered. We might kind of scoot it aside in order to, to find what we think we're looking for. So some sense of, of openness uh, to the process. We actually don't, we don't need to um, have some concrete idea of how this is going to unfold. It's actually much more interesting when we don't, and we just are one with the unfolding. Dogen Zenji said, to carry the self forward and experience the 10,000 dharmas is delusion. That's this, this principle, to impose our agenda on the unfolding of life is often not so skillful. He said that the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is awakening. So openness is, let Sishin reveal what it needs to reveal. Let what arises be what needs to be worked with. You don't have to go searching in there for some kind of twisted old piece of karma. Or you don't have to work on that thing that is haunting you outside of your retreat practice. It will all, What needs to be seen will come forward. And trusting that invites a certain kind of relaxation. That, that quality of, of non-seeking. What needs to be seen, if we're open to, if we're seeing, will be seen. If we're paying attention, what needs to be seen will come to light. So Dogen Zenji's phrase, that the 10,000 dharmas advance and realize the self is enlightenment, is a beautiful exposition of what we mean by mirror-like awareness. And that's the, the sixth element in the study of the self. And perhaps all the aforementioned elements are a vessel within which awareness can really heat up. In some of the Asian languages where Buddhism is, is long rooted, words have developed specifically for various functions of the mind. So a word like chitta means like heart mind. In English, we're basically doing the best we can to use the terms that we have to uh, give expression to something. It's not like we could find the right term and then all of a sudden we would all be on the same page about what we're talking about because 
words only point to an experience. So when we use the word awareness, it's important to uh, get some sense of what do we mean by that. We don't just mean um, I happen to know something. We don't just mean a piece of, of knowledge that we have within our mind. So in this context of Zazen and Seshin, on one hand, awareness is an indefinable mystery. An indefinable, inexhaustibly interesting mystery. And on the other hand, it's plain as day. So on the plain as day side, we're talking about paying attention. We're talking about paying attention with intention. Intending to attend to the breath. To what's arising in the mind, to the body, to whatever we're intending to attend to. And this attending to attend is not intention first and then attention later. These are simultaneously. This is one one gesture of being. It's one uh, act, one effort, so to speak. We intend forth attention. So in other words, awareness is a conscious selecting of what and where we want to experience. Of the whole span of our moment, of what we could be placing our attention on, awareness is consciously selecting what of that span. Maybe the whole span, maybe a very particular element of that span. There's a sign in the monastery that uh, is hanging in one of the hallways that says, Be aware. Be aware. So I like to say that awareness is a mode of being. It's a mode of mind. It's an engaged capacity. It's the mode of conscious, selective attention. So you could selectively attend to the hands, the face. You could selectively attend to the whole span, as I said. But it's conscious attention because the selection is in contrast to the monkey mind. Sometimes certain kinds of meditation masquerade as awareness when they're really just hanging out with the monkey mind. That is, we just kind of watch as our mind wanders here and there. We observe as our senses are pulled in one direction or another. And yes, it's good that there is some watching because that could be completely unconscious. But this kind of pinballing of attention is not what's meant by uh, awareness. Awareness is firmly intended, even if that is an effortless intention. It's just intention, but it's a committed intention to one aspect of the span of awareness. Probably making this more complex than it needs to be. So conscious, selective attention has various qualities. And with the mirror metaphor, I think 
uh, think of various qualities. First of all, it's open. Awareness is open. It can encompass. It can encompass. It's not uh, limited to experiencing just one texture of the moment against another. It can encompass. There's no limit to its ability to encompass. It's beyond um, dimension because it's open. And that openness means it's non-preferential. Kind of in this exposition, dropping out the, the, our human limits of embodying it. And speaking from, let's say, maybe this is the experience of someone who has fully realized awareness. In a fully realized awareness, there is no preference for what arises in its scope. There's no preference. It doesn't mean that chocolate isn't chocolate and vanilla isn't vanilla. It doesn't mean that pain turns into pleasure. They are distinct and clear in what they are, and yet there is no preference. They are equally fielded. They are, op they are opened to equally. It's non favoritismed it has no it does not play favorites so it's non-preferential the next quality is it's exacting it's exacting it experiences without distortion It's such an interesting thing to reflect on of how much of what we experience and take to be the way things are is actually um, experience filtered through our longing for things to be a particular way, filtered through our history, filtered through um, whatever cognitive and emotional biases we have. What does it mean that we experience things as they are? At the very least, we can release and mellow out the crust that we see. We can mellow out the, the clearly uh, apparent dust of I like, I don't like, that gets in between us and direct experience. So rather than inserting the self and its biases into experience, the isness of experience is allowed to presence on its own terms. The isness of experience is allowed, empowered to presence on its own terms. I actually think of this as a kind of profound gift to the universe because there is no universe apart from awareness. So in allowing things to bloom in their exactness, as much as we can muster that, we're allowing life to come forward and be experienced uh, in a more deep and uh, pure way. Um, not the least to mention is ourselves, allowing ourselves, our bodies, for example, the appearance of our face in the mirror, to presence on their own terms. 
particular kind of beauty there that's not beauty that's versus what is not beautiful, but an absolute beauty in that isness, in that fielding of things. Sometimes we call this clarity. Sometimes we call it clarity. When this quality of awareness is operating strongly in someone, we may find it both healing and unsettling. Our ways of distorting through our preferentiality is reflected to us. Because here we are beheld by somebody and we can feel the lack of that distorting fuzz. An undistorted reflection of our reflection is reflected to us. So we both feel seen and we feel seen through. But it's healing because there's something deeply trustworthy. We begin to trust ourselves more and more when we field experience with less personal bias. Ayakema said something about, you will become fearless when you completely trust yourself to not create harm. You will become fearless when you completely trust yourself to not create harm. And there's no way to stop creating harm without addressing the root of that in the mind. So this is deep work. This exacting clarity clear mirror, it's non-reactive, non-reactive. Non-reactive means something like there's no need to do something about what you experience. There is no need to do something about this sensation. There's no need to do something about the roommate's music that is too loud. There is no need to do something about the ache in your back. You may do something, but you have the option not to because it just is what it is. There's no need to do something with your mind. In other words, an opinion doesn't need to be formed about everything. And we're talking about this laboratory of zazen. We're not talking about in your everyday life when your full human capacities are in demand. In zazen, opinions are really not, we don't need to form them. Um, More or less, unless you're the cook, you know, tasting the food, whether it needs more salt or not, or your work situation calls for it, more or less opinions are really not a helpful use of the mind in this particular laboratory. And of course, clarity knows an opinion as just an opinion. And then its power, its negative power is deflated. Opinions are just opinions. From where comes the authority? In non-reactive clarity, ranking isn't a compulsion. There's no need to know where we stand or where other people stand. Because that has nothing to do with now. 
That's always about past and future ranking. Who I am versus who they are and who I'll be versus who they were. But ranking is, is irrelevant in this quality of presence. Meaning is not a lens through which experience needs to be viewed. We can relax the part of the mind that is busy trying to make meaning. I don't, I don't um, dismiss or undervalue the meaning-making imperative of human beings. But in Zazen, we can go beyond meaning and meaninglessness. Meaninglessness is an attitude that's taken on life that we can leave behind. Meaning is a desire that we don't have to fulfill on the cushion. Isness has no hunger for meaning. And yet it's not hollow. It's, it's a value-saturated state of being. So this kind of clarity has a feeling tone of, of serenity. Or let's say an absence of tension in response to what's being experienced. Feeling tone of serenity. And I think we, we long for this tranquility to hold or to balance out our human passions. It's a kind of um, mineral that the body is craving for and when we come to Dharma practice, we can kind of get it directly. It's a potent tincture of this absence of mental tension. You'll see as you continue to sit just how your nervous system begins to recalibrate as you rest more and more in clarity. A kind of soothing energy begins to circulate in the body to some degree from this. It's as important as any vitamin for the well-being of the whole system. So this open and non-preferential clarity is empty. It's empty. What does that mean? It's not a thing that relates to other things. So. We already know that we're not saying there's some metaphysical essence in there called awareness. That I'm going to move everything away and I'm going to discover that and kind of hit the jackpot. Awareness has no form, no identity, no substance apart from taking form. It's an activity, it's a process. Because all is experience. All things are activity, are process. Because awareness has no substance, it's always ready. It's always ready. As a mirror is always ready to reflect. It can't be filled. A mirror is not like a bucket. A mirror cannot be filled. It can be full, it's full of the moment it is fielding, but it can't be filled. 
It's inseparable from its reflections. You can never ever see a mirror without reflections. When I start to reflect on this, it, it touches something uh, in me. It, it, it's an image that is really compelling. There's no such thing as an empty mirror. But to try to even imagine a mirror that is empty, what would that mean? What would that be like? An empty mirror is a full mirror. Awareness is whatever we're experiencing. It's not a joining of one thing with another. It's taking all the shapes. It's intimate. The reflection and the mirror are inseparable. So in the Precious Mirror Samadhi, it says, Its use removes all suffering. And the use of it will get more and more subtle for us the more we, more we familiarize ourselves with uh, the practice. And the essentials, as we know, are kind of skillful indifference to the stream of our mind, and rather a rooting, a intimate engagement with some element of direct experience. Because awareness is all experience, experience will, will reveal the nature of awareness, whatever experience it is. So the breath is as good as your toenail. It really is just a matter of what is most uh, beneficial for your constitution. So precious mirror samadhi, its use removes all suffering. So an aspiration that orients us towards this quality of liberation is to be as much as possible a pristine fielding. Fielding direct experience unfiltered by the mind's words. And that doesn't mean you have to wipe them off, but rather to completely foreground the object of your attention. So if it's your face in the mirror, to foreground the face, to let that be within what your attention is gathered. If it's the breath, foreground the breath, foreground sound, whatever it is. Engaging it so carefully that the labels about it the stories we have about how meditation going are just not that interesting because the living texture of our life just becomes more compelling. Pristine fielding means also pristinely fielding the reactivities, the thoughts, the labels, the feelings to feel these as just reflections. See, it's not crucial that we have thoughtless state. It's a helpful, helpful to touch that from time to time. But what is crucial is that we recognize a thought as a thought, that we see an opinion as an opinion, that feelings are known as, as feelings. The relationship to them changes 
with conscious attention. So in this settling phase of retreat, a teasing apart even a little of the difference between direct experience and our thoughts about it is a real good start for that to be um, a first step in the, in the aspiration, to just be engaged with the, the nakedness of experience. In a way, as soon as we think about or reflect on something, um, we're just relating to an echo because the experience is already gone. Everything we think is after the fact of the breath, after the fact of the sound. It's part of what's meant by um, dharma, you know, truth. Why is direct experience true? Because it's unmediated. Because it's not an echo of the mind. Uh, as soon as you think about something, it's a memory. So we're engaging the, the direct light speed transformation, the isness of our being. So this mirror-like awareness is nowness, it's freshness, and it's free. And in a sense, it's easy because it's our fundamental nature, and it's really hard. It's really hard. And we can accept this sense of, of paradox. So please uphold, uphold this mirror. Reflect clarity, reflect smudge. They're both reflections. Whatever unfolds within this mirror embodies the virtue of isness. We can't realize this if we're always trying to wipe away what we don't like. Then we end up with um, our life, which is kind of messy, and the pure spiritual state that we love to get into. And that's almost as worse as before we started. So reflect whatever arises. It will arise, it will pass. Close with a poem by uh, Runkai. This is one of the nuns at the Tokeji nunnery that Kisei was sharing with us. She said, Various the reflections, yet the surface is unscarred. From the beginning, unclouded, pure mirror. Thank you.